request. Yes, we're going to talk about something today that someone asked me to talk about. Not very often have I had people say, well, what about? But occasionally, not very often, but I don't remember the last time someone has said, would I prepare a sermon about a specific passage from the Bible? Well, naturally, what could I say? But I guess I could have said no, but I said yes, of course. We need to understand what God says to us, and we shouldn't shy away from any passage in the Bible because it's there for us to understand and to benefit from. So today we're going to just tackle that. And a friend of mine does work from this same passage of the Bible, and he, he calls his messages the morality of resistance. Well, I thought that's pretty good until he explained further that he did it for a different kind of group one time, and for a very specific reason, he said he titled his sermon, Why Christians Should Break the Law. Well, that got their attention, and it might get ours as well. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and welcome to Faith Is, where we work together, share together, encourage each other to grow in God's direction, because we know that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I'm glad you've joined us. We do these for you, 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 my church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church, allows me to do these for you because we want to be a help to you, and we hope you find them useful. And today's going to be no exception, I think. I've worked on this message because while I was pretty sure I had the answer to the question people were asking, I wanted to look at it more carefully, and I thought it deserved a thoughtful approach. And so we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 13, specifically verses 1 through 7. And the main question is, should Christians submit to the authority, particularly of the government, without question? Whatever the government says do, are Christians expected to do just that? Well, it's a very penetrating question, a very important question. And before we start answering the question or examining those verses to get a head start on that, I think we need to have two agreements between ourselves. And the first is this. I want to ask you a question and get you to agree that, that yes, you'll do this. So here's the question. Will we do what God says, even if we don't like it? You see, the question of should we submit to the governing authorities without question is a, is a very important one. And so before we get into answering that, we need to come to grips with, and we need to kind of wrestle with, will we do what God says, even if we don't like it? You see, as followers of Jesus, we're obligated to follow the clear teachings of the Bible, even if we disagree with them. Um, do you need an example of that? Well, let me give you an example. The Bible is pretty clear, at least by my understanding, that God expects us to give tithes and offerings to his church to support the work of ministry. Well, I hear every now and then, and I'm pretty sure I observe, although I don't check the specific giving records, never have, I'm pretty sure people don't give their tithe to God. They disagree with him. Well, before we get into something as important as Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we need to ask ourselves, will we do what God says, even if we don't like it, even if we're not sure we agree with him, because God expects us to agree with him. Okay, so I think I hear all of you saying, yes, you will do what God says. 
you will agree with God, you won't fight him, you will cooperate with what God says, and you will grow in his direction because you know that God is trustworthy. And if he asks us to do something, then we can trust him and we can do it. So that's the first agreement. The second agreement is this. Do you agree, will you agree with me that our interpretation of Romans 13, whatever we come to the conclusion that Romans 13 tells us, our interpretation of Romans 13 must apply to all people in all places at all times. In other words, it needs to fit our context here in the United States, but it also needs to fit in the context of people that live under all types of government, including tyrannical governments. Does that make sense? See, if we believe the Bible is the timeless word of God, that it applies to people everywhere, then our interpretations need to not be just what suits us in our country. They have to be interpretations that would help people everywhere. So I think I see you're nodding your heads in agreement with that. So let's plunge in and let's think about what's going on here in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. We're going to agree up front that we're going to do what God tells us. When we discover what God is saying here, we're going to do what he says, and we're going to make sure that our interpretation isn't skewed somehow to our context, but that it applies to people everywhere. So maybe we should start. I think it'd be a good idea if I read these verses, just because you may not be familiar with them. Perhaps you have pulled out your Bible or your smartphone and you've looked them up while I was talking. I hope so. It's important for us to take a look at the scriptures and to, and to pay attention to them. So let me read. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. I like that one. And I think it's helpful. It's a more standard translation. You may like some other English translations. That's fine. I don't think there's a bad one. Uh, at least I haven't seen a bad one. They're different sometimes in different ways, but they're all useful. I think we can get to the heart of what God is trying to say to us from, from any of them. So Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. So the heart of the question really comes from that first verse, it's repeated later on down through the, through the passage, but the heart of the question is, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Well, let's start with a few stories from the Bible. 
You've probably heard me say that the stories really help us. And whenever I'm wrestling with something, trying to sort through something, I often try to think, well, what Bible story applies here? Was there a place in the Bible where they wrestled with the same sorts of ideas? And can their example, either by them doing the right thing or the wrong thing, can their example help me understand what God is saying to me? So I began thinking, and, and I couldn't list all of them because there are just too many that seem to, to come to mind when we think about Romans 13. But the first one I thought of was the Hebrew midwives. You remember the story? Israel was trapped in slavery in Egypt, and they were doing very well. In fact, their population was increasing, and Pharaoh was not happy about that at all. And so he ordered the midwives to kill the baby boys when they were born just to kill them flat out. Simple as that. Well, the Hebrew midwives did not do that. They refused to follow Pharaoh's order. Now, they didn't tell him they were refusing. They just refused. And they hid the babies, and they kept them alive. And Pharaoh wasn't particularly happy about that, but Exodus chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that God was pleased with the midwives. God was happy that they defied the governing authority and did not kill the babies. I'm not surprised, are you? Kind of makes sense. Well, one of the babies that survived because the midwives were faithful to God and did not kill the little guys was Moses. And Moses grew up, as you remember the story, it's a longer story than what I'm going to tell right now, but Moses grew up and ultimately God said to Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and lead my people out of slavery. Well, reluctantly, and that's putting it mildly, reluctantly, Moses went to Egypt, stood up to Pharaoh and said, God is telling you to let his people go so that they can worship him. And Pharaoh said, not a chance. The events that unfolded proved that God was stronger than Pharaoh, and Pharaoh ultimately had to back down and urge the people to leave and Moses led them out of Egypt. Now, I don't think that when Moses went at God's command to lead the people out of slavery, that he was submitting to the governing authority of Egypt. He was, in fact, standing up to it. Let my people go, he said, on God's behalf, and away they went. Another story, and these are not particularly connected for any reason, but you remember that a king named David sinned with Bathsheba, invited her over while her husband was away at battle. And, uh, well, you know the rest of the story. She became pregnant. That wasn't a good look for David. He had obviously done something reprehensible in the sight of God. He tried to cover it up, so he called Uriah back from the battlefield and welcomed him and asked him how it was going and finally said to Uriah, okay, thanks for coming. Go home to your wife and take it easy for a day or two before you go back to the battle. And Uriah did not obey the king's order. The king was the governing authority. Uriah did not go home. He said he wouldn't go home when the king's men were out battling. He could not be that unfaithful to his comrades in arms. And he didn't go home. And he defied David's order. Well, fast forward through that story, some other things, and, and the prophet Nathan comes to David, tells him a story about a man and a lamb and a rich man who took the lamb, and David became enraged and 
And Nathan used that story, if you recall the details. If not, look it up. It's a great story. And Nathan said to David that, that he was guilty of a great sin because of what he'd done with Bathsheba. Now, see, Nathan didn't submit to the governing authorities. He stood right there toe-to-toe -to -toe with David at God's command and said, you, O king, are wrong, and God is here to correct you. Well, he stood up to governing authority. That doesn't sound a lot like submitting to governing authority. Daniel, remember the story of Daniel? Daniel and other young men from the royal court in Jerusalem were taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar, and they were going to be trained in all of the literature and learning of Babylon, Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel and the other guys said, no, we don't want to eat the food and drink the drink that the king provides us. We'd like to eat just vegetables and water. And at the risk of their lives and the gentleman that was serving them, they got their request and they ate and did better, but they defied the orders of the king. Doesn't sound like submission to me. Maybe you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how the king built this big statue and got everybody together and they played music and the king said, bow down to the statue. And those three guys said, not a chance. They did it again. The king says, hey, if you don't do this, I'm going to put you in the fiery furnace and what God can deliver you from that. And they said, not a chance. They played the music and they stayed standing, brought them in before the king and the king fired up that furnace super hot. The guys that took them up there to throw them in died in the process. But the Bible tells us that the three men, before they were taken to the furnace, said to the king, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, O king, we will not bow down. Doesn't sound like submitting to the governing authorities to me. Well, you know the story, the king threw them in, and um, lo and behold, another person appeared with them in the furnace that looked like a god. We believe that was a, a vision of, of Jesus, God himself walking there among them. They came out and not a not a single hair on their head had been hurt by the fire. God delivered them from that. But they stood up and they didn't bow down to the king. Fast forward a little bit more in the story of Daniel. And you remember the story of the handwriting on the wall? Well, they were having this big raucous party and a hand appeared and wrote some words that they could not understand on the wall. The king called in Daniel and Daniel looked at it and he told them the truth. It wasn't good news for the king because it was a statement of judgment. But Daniel, instead of submitting to the king and telling the king what he wanted to hear, Daniel told him what the truth was and stood up to him. It doesn't exactly sound like submitting to me. When you tell a king what he doesn't want to hear, there's a little bit of danger in that. Well, Daniel survived that. The king did not take retribution on him. But sometime later, and you may remember this story, if you don't remember any other from Daniel, Daniel's enemies, his political enemies, did a hit job on him. Yeah, Daniel was the victim of a political hit job. Well, Daniel had a regular practice of praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was faithful to his God, had a regular habit of praying, and his enemies convinced the king to make an order that no one could pray to anyone but the king for a period of time. Well, Daniel didn't change his practice, and they caught him in the act, and they took him into the king, and 
and that landed him in the lion's den from which God delivered him. It doesn't sound like Daniel submitted to the rules, to the laws, to the orders of the kingly power while he was in exile in Babylon. He stood up to the king when he needed to, and he remained faithful to God all through that. He somehow managed to navigate life in the royal court of Babylon, a pagan court, through many years and remained faithful to God. And part of what he had to do was to say no when they gave him an order he could not, he could not obey. I had another friend years ago who preached a sermon. He said uh, something about there will always be people who will make rules for you that you can't keep. And he was talking about Daniel and the rules they made for Daniel, but he couldn't keep them. Well, doesn't sound like submission to me. So, hmm. Well, there's one other thing that I thought of, and these were just kind of random. I don't suppose there's any real system to the way I thought of them. But when Israel was taken into exile in a foreign land, and you remember that story, they had been repeatedly warned by God, repeatedly to straighten up, and they refused. And so God finally used a foreign power, the Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, to take the people into exile. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar didn't win that battle. The scriptures are clear that God gave Israel to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Jeremiah the prophet, in talking to the people and helping them navigate that time, said to the people on God's behalf that they were to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Jeremiah 29.5. Doesn't sound like they were to resist the government. It sounds like they were to try to fit in and have a life because obviously the people didn't know the future. They didn't know how long they would be there. And Jeremiah was counseling them that they needed to prepare for a, a while. So, you know, when you think about this, and there are other places in the Bible, and mercy, we can't go on forever about that. We'll touch on a few more places in a little while. But whatever Romans 13 means, it can't mean that Christians are expected to submit to the governing authorities absolutely and without question. Whatever it means, we know now that it can't mean that we are to do whatever a governing authority tells us without question, that there are other considerations. Daniel proves that. Nathan proved that. Uriah demonstrated that. Moses, the midwives, they all recognized that something else was going on, and they could not just bow down to that governing authority. So we want to take a look at that in a little more detail. So let me think about that as we go through the verses there in Romans chapter 13. One of the words that we notice, and I read that from the Christian Standard Bible, is it uses the word submit. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Now that submit word is a pretty strong word, and, and it has definite connotations to us that that means bow down and do what you're told. Well, so I got to thinking, wonder what other English translations say, do they use that same word? And lo and behold, they don't all use the same word. There's a variety of ways that the translators chose to, to put these verses. The most common one that I found was the, the idea of be subject to. The New International Version says that, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Version, the King James Version says that. The New English Translation says that, the New Revised Standard Version says that they all say, be subject to. The New Century Version says, yield to. The Contemporary English Version says, obey. 
the contemporary English Bible says, place themselves under. So they don't all use the word submit. In fact, only three that I looked at, and I looked at many, and there are many more that I just didn't take time or have time to look at, but only three of them use the word submit. And so I was thinking, okay, is there more to this? So I looked at some of the original language helps that, that I have available. And, and it seems to me that what we need to understand from this verse is, is submit is not a bad word to use. I'm not suggesting that, but it doesn't convey exactly the idea in the context and in the use of language that's going on here. It's more of the sense is that we are to control ourselves and be inclined toward cooperation with governing authorities. In other words, we're not to be just rebellious for the sake of being rebellious. Uh, one writer says that submit means to recognize one's place in recognized authority, so we cooperate, but we do not give unquestioned obedience to any and every authority's dictates. I thought that was well said. And that seems to be the sense of it, particularly when you realize that whatever this means, it can't mean unquestioned submission or obedience to a governing authority. It simply can't based upon the stories that we talked about. So that's an attempt to define the idea of submit or be subject to. But then we need to think about what's the idea of governing authorities. Now, we tend to think of government because that's the way we use language. There are some people who think that Paul was not just talking about government, although I'm not sure anybody thinks he wasn't including that. But there was a tendency for non-Jews to have trouble getting along with Jews in those days. They might not, probably did not see eye to eye on things. So, so Paul may have been, when he wrote the letter to the Roman church, and that's what Romans is, Paul's letter to the Roman church, the church at Rome, he might have had an idea to say to the Gentile believers there in Rome that, that they shouldn't be just resistant to synagogue authorities. They needed to find a way to cooperate with them and, and how for them to, to get along as, as followers of Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. So there's a little bit of that. The passage also says, when you read down through that, that there's no authority except from God. And so that gets our attention. Now, hold on. If, if there's no authority except from God, why shouldn't we obey that? Well, keep in mind that what it's not saying is that God establishes all authority and that authority operates according to his will. Yes, no authority exists except by God's permission, but it doesn't mean that God established that authority on purpose for us to do exactly what it says. It's more in the context of this passage that God is a God of order. And so consequently, authority is instituted by God in order to keep order. And, and the authority is put in place in a literal sense under God. So God is still the authority. All authorities are still under God's authority. And again, the text does not say God sanctions all authority. When God used Babylon to uh, correct Israel by taking them into exile, it clearly didn't mean that God approved of Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. He clearly didn't based on Daniel and based upon what happened in those stories. But nonetheless, God chose to use that pagan empire because Israel had refused to obey God. It also talks about in the passage that that if we resist proper order, we resist God. Well, you look into that a little bit more, and that idea of resistance here means being hostile toward or showing hostility. So what we really need to understand here is 
what it's talking about is we shouldn't have unwarranted rebellion against government or any other authority, because simply to be rebellious is de facto rebellion against God. It doesn't mean we don't follow God first, as they did in the stories that I mentioned, but it means we don't just find reasons to be resistant. Because as it goes on in verses three and four, it talks about how cooperation is good, order is good. And the real question arises when a government supports evil and opposes righteousness like the midwives faced. See, it wasn't that order is bad. It was just what happens when a government supports evil and says you must do evil. Then you run into a conflict, and clearly God does not sanction that. But at the same time, nonsense is not what God had in mind. He wants to help us have the kind of common sense wisdom that uh, we work within the power structures and we, we try to cooperate with those kinds of things so that, so that things go well and, and order is maintained. And, and in some senses, when you get down to verses three and four, it's entirely likely that Paul is giving an ideal description of what should happen, not necessarily what does happen. And then in verses five and six, we get a glimpse of what cooperation looks like. Verses five and six, it talks about how you have obligations and what you should fulfill them. And yes, I'm sorry to tell you that Paul is clear that if you owe taxes, you pay the taxes. When you go to the store and buy something, you got to pay the sales tax. When you fill up your car with gas, the gas tax is included and you have to pay it. Now, taxes are something that a lot of us don't like much of, but there was a specific reason Paul may have mentioned taxes. And we don't know this for sure, but about the time that Paul was writing this letter to the church in Rome, there was a tax revolt taking place in that area. And so Paul may have been responding to those people saying, look, pay your taxes. It's not appropriate to have a tax revolt. It's not going to help. It's just going to make trouble for you. Don't do it. So we don't know that for sure, but there is a sense that that might be part of it. He goes on to say, if you owe a toll, pay a toll. We have toll bridges here where I live in, the, in Lee County, Florida. And when I use those toll bridges, I have to pay the toll. And the Bible says that's entirely appropriate. I don't like paying toll. Never have. Maybe never will. Just kind of irritates me. But when I have to use that road, that bridge, I pay the toll. Then he talks about respect and honor. And he says that, that the authorities, the people that are due respect, we should respect them. Now, there's a little bit of a challenge when they act unrighteously. You know, so we have to ask ourselves, do they, do they merit our respect when they act unrighteously? Well, that's a challenge. Now, I think we can still respect the office people hold even when they behave badly. And I wonder if we can call them out for their bad behavior when they behave badly by still being honest about it, but, but being respectful in the way we do it. Well, that's one of our challenges because Paul clearly says that we need to, to give uh, respect to the people that are due respect. And he says, we give honor to the people that are due honor. Now, that was pretty significant in those days. You may remember hearing me talk about how it was an honor and shame culture, and, and it was important to, for people in those days to, to gather honor to themselves and to avoid shame because 
It was such an important concept and, and to increase in honor was the right thing. And, and, you know, it's interesting that, that probably in some sense, Paul was being countercultural here saying, look, honor isn't costing you anything. And you're not diminishing yourself because you find your identity in Jesus. Now, he didn't say that in this passage. Other places in the Bible does. And probably it's important for us to think about that so that we can know how to go forward on things. So I guess up to this point, whatever it means, we can pretty clearly say that whatever Romans 13 is trying to teach us, it's not trying to teach us unquestioned subjection to bowing down to submission to governing authority. It is telling us to have respect for the authority God puts in place to try to live our lives and navigate it so we can get along. Daniel's the excellent example of that. But it doesn't tell us that we should do whatever they tell us to do, no matter what. And that's important. That's important. Well, what does it mean? Well, what are our responsibilities? Can we gather from our thinking along on this some insights into what God expects of us, because clearly this was an issue, and clearly it is now because there's all kinds of, of stress and strain and furor and resistance, non-compliance to what is going on in the government today, specifically the federal government, some of the state governments. So what is our responsibility as Christians when we live in a world like this where there are all these competing tensions? when the government says some things that we're supposed to do that we just can't in good conscience do, and how do we navigate all of that? Well, that's what we're going to do when we get back from the break. We're going to start talking about some conclusions so we know how to live in these challenging times, because God doesn't just leave us out there saying, hey, behave yourself. He helps us, and he's going to. You come back right after this break. This is Dr. Peter McCullough. Do you know there's no other condition that I'm aware of where vitamins and supplements make such a big difference than COVID-19? We have an abundance of data that we need to be replete with a variety of micronutrients, and that includes vitamins, minerals, and other substances our bodies need. I rely on Healthy Cell Super Boost. That's Immune Super Boost. It's a, a gel pack that can be taken every day. I like to do it before I exercise and before I go out. It's a wonderful supplement. It gives me the immune super boost that I need. Go to HealthyCell.com, use the promotional code OUTLOUD, and get a discount on your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. 
and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Well, here we go again. We're back and we're continuing. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, where we stretch each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're considering Romans chapter 13 today. And what is God trying to teach us about how we get along with governing authorities, which we usually think of as governments, and it does not have to be just governments. It can be other kinds of authority. It really helps us navigate authority challenges all around. And we started out by looking at some examples from the Bible of various people and how they navigated it. We started with the Hebrew midwives, and God commended them for saving the lives of the babies and defying the orders of Pharaoh. We looked at Daniel and David and Nathan and Uriah. and Well, we came to the conclusion that whatever God is saying to us in Romans chapter 13, he is not telling us that we are to have unquestioned submission to every order of a governing authority. So, to continue to understand what Romans 13 is saying, I came across another little bit of information that really helped me kind of put this into context, because we talked earlier that whatever this means has to fit in the context of our government here in the United States and any other government around the world, that whatever God is saying to us is a timeless principle, a timeless idea that applies to all people in all places at all times, because that's the nature of the Bible. Well, I was looking into the nature of government in ancient times, and I don't think I had ever seen this idea or realized it. It's probably because I'm in the slow group and just didn't hear it sometime years ago. But the problem with government in ancient times, as this one writer was explaining, was that they could either have too much government or too little government. You see, the, the times were different, and, and we have struggles to understand because they were so different. But what, what the writer meant was that in ancient times, they would have trouble because sometimes they would have too much government. And what that meant is there was a tyrannical government, and it was tyranny, heavy-handed, do what we tell you with harsh consequences if you did not. Too much government, tyranny is the way he described it. Or sometimes, in some places, they had too little government. In other words, there wasn't any order or any authority keeping order, and so there was anarchy. And so it was chaotic, and nobody could live life well in either system. Either there was too much and tyranny or too little and anarchy. And in the context of those struggles in ancient times, Paul's writing in chapter 13 of Romans makes a little more sense because Paul seems to be encouraging the believers to find ways to manage both of these extremes 
and, and recognize there can be a, a balance between them. Now, I'm not fond of saying when there are two extremes that the answer is somewhere in the middle. I think that's, that's patently incorrect. We look for truth. We don't look for a compromise somewhere in the middle. So it's a little daunting for me when I, when I think about this too much government versus too little government, because it is a balancing act, and that would imply somewhere in the middle. And so I think in this case, that's probably true. But don't fall into that trap, by the way, when somebody tells you there are two extremes, the truth has to be somewhere in the middle. No, the truth is the truth that God gives us, and that's that. So now we've been thinking about this. What are some of the reasons that we might have concluded other than the obvious from our stories earlier, that this can't mean slavish submission. Well, I was thinking about how to rationalize that or, or think through that and not rationalize in the sense of justify a preconceived position, but to, but to give a good response to support our, our conclusions. And so I was thinking about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. That's a, that's a grid by which we examine things in the Wesleyan tradition the tradition that I'm pleased to be a part of. And there are four grids that we examine, reason, tradition, experience, and scripture. So I was thinking, you know, in the area of reason, it's just somehow intuitively difficult for us, putting everything else aside, to think that Christians should, without question, obey every governing authority. And indeed, that's, that's got to be the case. One writer I read said, the Christian must take care to discern possible cases where obedience to the government entails disobedience to God. And that's true. So, so reason, reason alone helps us think that, no, it can't be slavish submission, absolute submission to a government. And then we think about tradition, because that's another one of those grids in the quadrilateral. Well, tradition, we've already talked about the biblical heroes and how they challenged godless authority. And, and indeed, Paul, the writer of Romans, was ex executed by Rome. He obviously did not submit to the governing authorities, or they wouldn't have executed him. So tradition gives us plenty of reason to say it can't mean absolute submission to authority. Well, how about experience? Well, fortunately, most of us in the United States have not experienced the horrors of godless government, as some people around the world have. But we've seen them, we've studied them, we have lived through times where it took place in other countries, and, and so we, we can tell from that, that that absolute subjection to such governments cannot be what God wants. See, none of us believes that God wants Christians to cooperate with things like the Holocaust. No one thinks that God wants Christians to cooperate with the, the Southeast Asian killing fields of some years ago, or think about the Marxist government in the Soviet Union or Russia, however you think of that. Millions of people have been killed around the world under Marxist governments, and surely God doesn't expect us to bow down to those. How about the, and this, this is, we got to face this, okay? So buckle your spiritual seatbelt. How about uh, the issue of slavery that goes on around the world? Human trafficking, we call it. But it's a it's a massive problem, massive, and and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are subject to the horrors of human trafficking. Now, some governments seem to sanction that. You don't think that we should bow down to those governments, do you? Aren't we glad that William Wilberforce got rid of slavery? Sure, we are. And, and here's another one. 
the brutality inflicted upon the people in Afghanistan as a result of the United States withdrawal and the debacle that caused surely is not something that Christians are expected to support without challenge. How could we support faithful followers of Jesus being slaughtered simply because they follow Jesus and the policies and the, and the decisions and the behaviors that resulted in that kind of horror. I heard recently that a mother was horrified that she was in such a terrible position. She may have to sell her three-year-old daughter into slavery in Afghanistan to survive. Uh, we, we are not expected, surely by experience, we know that we can't be expected to support that kind of thing without challenge. But in the Wesleyan quadrilateral lateral, we have reason, tradition, and experience, but we also have scripture. And when it comes right down to it, if there are conflicts between our reason, tradition, and experience, we're going we're gonna to side with what the Bible says. And so there are some things that the Bible says to us straight up in other places that we need to consider. Jesus said, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. An attempt to navigate, not to cause undue difficulty for us or for the government or anybody else, but to make sure that our loyalty is in the right place. And Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 said straight up, we must obey God rather than people. And there it is, isn't it? That's what it is. We must obey God rather than people. You see, the whole weight of the scriptures, including our understanding of Romans chapter 13, is simple, clear, and direct. We need to be good citizens, but our first loyalty is to God. Now, as part of my study, I read Romans 13 in the English translation called The Message. And to me, when I read that, I thought, wow, that answers the questions really well. So I want to read that English translation for you so you can get a sense of that. Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, be a good citizen. All governments are under God. Insofar as there is peace and order, it's God's order. So live responsibly as a citizen. If you're irresponsible to the state, then you're irresponsible with God, and God will hold you responsible. Duly constituted authorities are only a threat if you're trying to get by with something. Decent citizens should have nothing to fear. Do you want to be on good terms with the government? Be a responsible citizen and you'll get on just fine. The government working to your advantage. But if you're breaking the rules right and left, watch out. The police aren't there just to be admired in their uniforms. God also has an interest in keeping order and he uses them to do it. That's why you must live responsibly not just to avoid punishment, but also because it's the right way to live. That's also why you pay taxes, so that an orderly way of life can be maintained. Fulfill your obligations as a citizen, pay your taxes, pay your bills, respect your leaders. I think that really well sums up what we need to, to understand about that. And so when, if you struggle with, with Romans 13, remember the Bible stories we talked about, remember some of these principles, remember Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than people, and go get a copy of the message. It's available free online, a number of places, you won't have trouble finding it, and read those seven verses in the message, and it really, really spells it out, I think, extraordinarily well. I was so impressed when I read that, so thankful for that. So the clear, direct message from God from Romans 13 is that we need to be good citizens. Christians are responsible to be good 
citizens. So what does that mean to be good citizens? What does that mean in the context of the United States of America and our times today? What does that mean for us in terms of our behavior as the people of God? Well, we need to talk about that, and we need to think about that, because here's where it might get a little difficult for some of us. I don't think Christians in my lifetime have been diligent about their citizenship. I think they've too many of them been negligent. So let's go to the Declaration of Independence so we can understand, and here we're trying to apply Romans to our context. Okay, I'm not trying to get out of saying it should be applied to other contexts, but, but we live, and most of us that are listening to this live in the United States, and in, in a nation of liberty, what is our responsibility as citizens? It's really not too different in another context, because the principles really line up quite well. But I'm going to talk about it in terms of our responsibilities. So the Declaration of Independence tells us what kind of people we are and what kind of government we have. For when the men declared independence back in 1776, they spelled out what that meant in what we call the Declaration of Independence. It's one of our great charters of liberty, that in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Part of where it, what it says in the second paragraph in the Declaration of Independence is this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Okay, let's just stop there because that's enough to give us an idea of what God intends for us as good citizens. So it says there are self-evident truths, things that are so obvious that you can't miss them. People are created equal, and God gives us rights that no one can take away. That's what it means when it says unalienable rights. They can't be violated or taken away because God has given them to us. And it gives us three examples, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not the sum total of our rights. That's an example of them giving the vision for what our founders were creating when they created our government. Goes on to say something extraordinarily important. And, and if you want to be a good citizen, as God calls you to be, make sure you know the answer to this question. What's the purpose of government in the United States? Why do we have a government? Why did we form the government we did when the founders decided it was time to be independent and form this new nation. Well, Americans formed our government for one primary purpose. Write this down. Don't forget it. Never let it escape you. The primary purpose, and it says it right there in the declaration that I read, is that governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. So people institute governments for this purpose, to secure those rights. Remember those inalienable rights? They are to be secured, and that's why we form governments from the consent of the governed. So the government that we have consented to form is primarily supposed to preserve our rights. Not tell us what they are, not tell us what they aren't, not take them away when they want to, not give them to us if they think they're so kind to do it. No, the primary responsible of every elected 
person in our government is to secure our rights, the unalienable rights of the people. And the government gets its limited power from the consent of the governed, the people. So we talked earlier today about governing authority. And I said that, yeah, governing authority is probably government, but it could be other types of governing authority. So what is the governing authority in the United States? You ever thought about that? It's important to think about that. Then the answer we just read. Uh, you think about answering that question while I read that portion from the Declaration of Independence. The question is this, can you identify the governing authority in America? We hold these truths to be self-evident from the Declaration, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's the end of the quote from the Declaration. So who is the governing authority in the United States? Is it the president? Well, I'm looking at the text of that, and I don't see the president mentioned anywhere in there. And of course, when the Declaration was written and signed, we didn't have a president. Governing authorities, the Congress, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, those had not been formed either. And they're not mentioned in here, but it talks about forming government. Governments are instituted, it says. And that those groups, what we call the legislature, the House and the Senate, they're not mentioned as governing authorities here. Well, some people might say, well, the Supreme Court, because they have to decide what's constitutional and what isn't. Well, now you mentioned something else, the Constitution and the Supreme Court, neither of which existed when the Declaration was written and signed. And yet, it tells us in this brief little passage that I read, who are the governing authorities in this country? Have you picked up on it yet? Because it's not the President, it's not the Congress, it's not the Supreme Court, it's not your state governor, it's not your state legislature, it's not your state Supreme Court. The governing authority in America is the consent of the governed. The people are king. See, one of the things that governing authority implies is there is somebody in charge. There is someone who decides things. An authority decides things. In the United States, we have government that derives their just powers from the consent of the governed. The governed are you and me. We, the people, are king. We are the governing authority in this country. You remember Abraham Lincoln said what? That this is a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. In our day, we have let that idea slip. And we somehow think that the government is some separate entity, separate from us and distinct from us, and, and we're subject to it in a way that certainly was never intended and is not true based upon our own founding document, the Declaration of Independence. So always remember, when you read Romans 13 and, and apply it to the United States, and it says there's a governing authority and that we need to cooperate with authorities, who are the authorities we cooperate? Well, ourselves. We, the people, are the governing authority. And in other words, 
some people put it this this way that the people are king. Well, that's a good way to think about it because kings are sovereign and they exercise authority and the people in the United States are king. We the people, our constitution starts out forming this government. The people are king. Never forget that. The primary reason for government, according to the American understanding of that, is that our governments are to secure our rights and the only power they have is the power that comes from the governed, from our consent. So all of the people that I talk to on Sunday morning, all of you who are listening to me in the United States, all of the people are king. It's the people's will that rules in the United States. Now, here's another idea that comes from a gentleman who I'm acquainted with, Bill Federer. He's a prolific writer and has written a lot about the history of the United States and, and a lot of the, the important things that we need to understand. And one of the things that he wrote was that in the United States, the people are king and the pastors are counselors to the king. So that's why I talk about issues of public policy. Now, I don't fall into the trap of calling everything political because that's ridiculous. It's not all political. Yes, we live in a political environment. There's nothing wrong with that. By, with some of my work that I do in the public arena is in the political environment. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But we pastors are counselors to the people who make the decisions about public policy, and we must not be silent because we need to make sure that the people understand what God says about the issues that will come before them and the people they elect. And so we, the people who are king, who are sovereign, need to make sure we select representatives that reflect our viewpoint, our values, the things that we hold dear. And so we as pastors need to, need to fulfill our role as counselors to the king advisors to the people so the people will make good decisions, make better decisions, and particularly in the case of elections, choose better people. And when it comes to debates on public policy, so that the people will understand God's wisdom on that. So pastors are always counselors to the king. It's really kind of an important responsibility. It's why I'm not reluctant to talk about things like this, because before God, I'm responsible to do that. Now, I also mentioned that some people are put off by all of this because it's called political. Uh, don't fall into that trap. I, I find people thinking about that all the time. It's, it's not helpful to think of it that way. And, and we who are involved in things like this, we don't do it because of politics. Politics is the pursuit of power. We do it because we're citizens and citizenship is the pursuit of the best government. But what does it mean to be a good citizen? If it's different than politics, what are some things that we need to focus on to be good citizens? Let me give you three as we close out our thoughts on Romans 13. I want you to consider Daniel. Go back and read Daniel, thinking about these three ideas. Daniel and the men that were with him, that are, whose story is told throughout the book of Daniel through the first six chapters, were consistently principled. From the issue of what they would eat, to bowing down to the idols, to praying. They were consistently principled. We need to be consistently principled. And we have to know where our line is and to say, no, this is who I am. This is what I believe. I'm not changing. This is what God has said.
consistently principled. Second thing we have, and it's a huge advantage for the church, for the people of God, is that we need to remember our moral authority comes from God. That's where Daniel and his friends got their convictions. Their moral authority comes from God. And I'm convinced the only hope for the world, the only hope for the United States, is for the people of God to speak with the moral authority of God himself. That's rooted in the teachings of the Bible. That's what Daniel did. They knew they had to please God, and they knew their moral authority came from God. We are more fortunate than they. They didn't apparently have access to the printed Bible like we do. We at least can read that and understand God's words to us to help us understand. So they and we need to be consistently principled. We need to recognize our moral authority comes from God. So that's one of the reasons I said at the beginning that we have to do what God says, no matter whether we agree with it or not because we only have moral authority when we build our authority on God's and God alone. We find out what God thinks through the pages of the Bible. And the third thing I noticed out of Daniel, and you may notice many more things, I encourage you to do that, is they had unflinching courage. They refused to back down. The men said to Nebuchadnezzar, you can throw us in there. Our God is able to deliver us from that fire, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down unflinching courage. Similarly, but not in as dramatic a fashion, they did that with the food. They refused to eat. Daniel did the same thing with praying. He would not stop praying because he knew he had to be true to what God had called him to do. Unflinching courage. It's time for the people of God to demonstrate that they're principled. It's time for them to call on the Bible and to cite the Bible as their moral authority, and it's time for us to have unflinching courage. So go, be that kind of people. That's who God's called us to be, the very best of citizens. And we can do that and we'll help each other. And I wish you the best until next week. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Go be strong in the Lord. Amen. Amen.